You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. Air Canada will have to answer to the Federal Transportation Minister over its treatment of disabled passengers after a Prince George man said he had to drag himself off a plane. As Travis Prasad reports, he's not the only BC traveler who's had a bad experience with the airline. If I had dirty shoes, there would be something up and you guys would be like, I don't trust the guy in the wheelchair with dirty shoes. Comedian Ryan Lachance says there was nothing funny about his treatment on an Air Canada flight. I just wanted to go home. In May, the 44-year-old White Rock resident flew back to YVR after performing at the Halifax Comedy Festival. Lachance has cerebral palsy and relies on a wheelchair. Airlines typically use a lift, similar to this one, to get him in and out of airplane seats. But this time, Lachance says two ground crew members tried moving him by hand instead. And they go to pick me up and it was a struggle right out of the gate to get me even out of the chair. After a 15-minute struggle, Lachance says the workers accidentally dropped him onto the airplane aisle where he was stuck for another 45 minutes. I landed on my butt really hard. I bruised my back. It was this whole ordeal. And the whole time, my caregiver and myself were like, you're not doing this right. We need the Eagle Lift. Lachance is speaking out after hearing about Prince George resident Rodney Hodgins' experience with Air Canada. After landing in Las Vegas in August, Hodgins says a flight attendant told him to move to the front of the plane to make way for cleaners. But he has cerebral palsy and can't walk. I grabbed onto the seats like this and I pulled my seats myself through the seats while she moved my legs. Air Canada admits to violating disability regulations in this case and has apologized to Hodgins. Following these incidents, the federal transport minister now summoning the airline to Ottawa to present a plan that addresses its treatment of passengers with disabilities. I just want them to change their practices and train their people properly and use the Eagle Lift when people request it. For now, Lachance says he'll book his flights with other airlines whenever possible. Travis Prasad, Global News. The federal government appears to have buckled under pressure over carbon tax breaks. Earlier this week, both Jonathan Wilkinson, Jonathan Wilkinson and the Prime Minister were firm, ruling out more carve-outs. But as Richard Zussman reports, today, Wilkinson said more help is coming to help British Columbians with home heating costs. The heat has been on the federal Liberals. On Friday, a blast of cool air. What we've done is ask provinces and territories to partner with us to make heat pumps free. Um, both the cost of the pump and the installation. The announcement coming as a surprise, part of an answer to Global News's question during an unrelated event. Details still unknown about exactly what this free heat pump program to get people off oil will look like. We will be working to put in place a co-delivery arrangement in British Columbia. I've had similar conversations with New Brunswick and Manitoba. It's important, irrespective of where you live, that you get that support. The B.C. government has been demanding support publicly for more than a week. All of this coming after Ottawa froze the carbon tax immediately on home oil heating starting in the Atlantic provinces, but not in B.C. We have lots of uh, work to do with them. Uh, if in fact we are going to be the next uh, pilot site. The opposition BC United skeptical about the federal government's turn here and the promise to give away free heat pumps, saying it's relief now the British Columbians need. I have met with tradespeople, with seniors, with others that are really struggling right now just to get food on their table. 
and they need relief today. Uh, they don't need, uh, you know, a $20,000 free heat pump. The provincial NDP has so far rejected the idea of waiving the carbon tax on fossil fuel home heating here, even though the federal NDP, the NDP in Alberta and Saskatchewan have all called for it. There are about 40,000 oil customers in the province and nearly a million using natural gas to heat their home. We've become the most unaffordable province in the entire country. And in that context, especially when the Prime Minister makes a decision to provide tax relief on the East Coast uh, to give people a break there, the same fundamental principle should apply everywhere in Canada. And as cost of living goes up and temperatures go down, it's relief for many that can't come soon enough. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Okay, Keith Baldry joins us with a little more on this. Keith, rather than make any changes to carbon pricing in BC, what are you hearing about the possibility of rebates? Yeah, so a lot of them changed in just one week. As Richard reported, it started with the Trudeau government suddenly out of nowhere relaxing carbon pricing in the Atlantic provinces. Others jumping on board, including the federal NDP caucus and NDP parties in other provinces. So it's put a lot of pressure now out of nowhere on the David E.B. government, on a, on a government when they were in opposition, actually opposed the carbon tax some time ago. So the buzz around here, something's up. We'll see what happens in the spring and maybe perhaps a budget-related measure. In any event, the Premier did expect Express some sympathy today for the plight of those in colder climes in BC, in particular as we go through the winter when it comes to home heating costs. Here's the Premier. Uh, it's quite urgent. People are facing a uh, uh, cold winter ahead in British Columbia, an expensive winter ahead, and they need support. And so we're uh, ready to go with the federal government on deploying that. So rebates are certainly something that's not new in B.C. We saw them from the B.C. Liberal government and the current NDP government for other issues, ICBC rebates and such. Not unheard of, perhaps, to have a B.C. hydro rebate to just sort of defray some of your expenses when it comes to home heating. Look for something either in the budget or conceivably even before then. I think the goalposts have basically changed here when it comes to carbon pricing and home heating as a result of the Prime Minister's, again, out-of-the-blue move to have a measure relaxed in Atlantic Canada and not elsewhere in B.C., uh, not mm -hmm. elsewhere in Canada. Canada. Yeah, we'll keep an eye out for that for sure. Keith, thanks very much. All right. Supporters of a controversial drug users service rallied today after its funding was cut off and its organizers were arrested. As Paul Johnson reports, there are still many unanswered questions about the operation. So we come here today to show this unjust government that unjust laws must be disobeyed. For the hundreds who turned out at Friday's rally in March, part of the call to action is a moral duty to disobey laws they see as unjust. I'm gonna keep on walking, keep on talking, marching for a safe supply. While some dispute that there even is such a thing, safe supply is what the Drug User Liberation Front say they were working on for two years buying large amounts of heroin, cocaine and methamphetamine, getting it tested at a lab they say was at UVic, then giving it away or selling it at cost to a known group of users. That ended last week when police raided their office and arrested its two co-founders. And what do we say to the VPD? Shame! Will the Premier take full responsibility as Dolph's activities became more widely known, they triggered controversy in Victoria, with the government cancelling their funding of the group. UVic told Global News they can't verify they tested Dolph's drugs. 
and the BC Centre on Substance Abuse, which has a research project on Dolph's work, has been asked, but yet to provide evidence they did an ethics review on that project. With Dolph raising so many prickly questions, drug entrepreneur and Dolph funder Dana Larson says that may be why he was arrested this week on a separate matter. I'm a big supporter of Dolph and I think it's not a coincidence that they were raided and we were raided within one week of each other. Late Friday, a group called the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition put out a statement in solidarity with Dolph, underscoring the message that whatever laws are on the books, if they're broken in the spirit of saving lives, that's okay. Here's a member of Moms Stop the Harm. Dolph. We support what Dolph has done and, and will do again in the future, and we need to really change public opinion around this. In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. Another big development today in the ongoing controversy over Mary Ellen Turpel LaFond, the former judge, scholar, and BC representative for children and youth, has withdrawn from the Order of Canada at her own request. Terpel LaFond was plunged into controversy last year after an investigation raised questions about her claims to Indigenous ancestry. She has since lost a number of other awards, including honorary degrees and an award from the BC Civil Liberties Association. A new poll suggests most Vancouverites are opposed to the Jericho Lands Luxury High Rise Project. Respondents cited density and the possible environmental impact on the environment of this development. However, as Aaron MacArthur reports, there is pressure to maximize use of the land as the city battles a housing crisis. There isn't any question what is here now is not a viable option. When the Jericho lands are redeveloped, it will reshape the west side of Vancouver. What that redevelopment for this site looks like, though, is still up for debate. There are two distinct visions. The owners of the land, the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations are proposing massive towers with as many as 13,000 homes. Some residents in Point Grey are alarmed at that potential change, but instead of dismissing the plan outright, our vision they have proposed an alternative vision. Still, thousands of new homes, but in smaller buildings with gentler densification. Before the process goes any further, the Jericho Residents Coalition has released results of a survey they conducted. The numbers, they say, show clear support for their vision. We just didn't see it being developed uh, in the right way uh, for the city. The survey asked 400 residents all over Vancouver about their preference for the Jericho lands. 60% of those surveyed strongly agree the city should reject the more aggressive development, while 71% said they would support the alternative vision. When people sit down and consider you know, what, what we have to offer versus what uh, how this might turn out, uh, you know, we think that uh, we're on the right track. Despite the evidence of support from this small sample size, it might not matter. Rapid transit will be eventually extended to UBC. The city is in the midst of a housing crisis. And according to economists, the developer has every incentive to maximize value on this land. It's pretty hard to argue from a policy perspective that you ought to leave value on the table when you're developing land. The city expects to see an updated policy statement on the Jericho lands by the end of 2023. If council approves, work can begin on the first phase of rezoning. Any actual construction, though, is still years away. Aaron MacArthur, Global News.
Tenants of Skyline Towers in New Westminster are protesting an attempt by their landlord to make them pay for million-dollar elevator repairs. XL Properties is appealing a recent ruling by the Residential Tenancy Branch that said it was liable for the repair costs after years of neglect. Janet Brown reports. They're working okay now? Uh, almost they do. The elevators at the Skyline Towers on Agnes Street in New Westminster were finally repaired. There was one instance I actually helped the lady that lived up on 16 carry her twins upstairs. Right? And I blew up my knees. But tenants say the landlord then tried to download the cost of repairs onto them. This is unjust. This is unfair. Which would have meant roughly an extra $50 a month in rent. It's pretty tough with the cost of food and everything. I mean, it just skyrocketed. But in April, the residential tenancy branch denied the landlord's request to raise the rents to cover the elevator upgrade. Doesn't happen all the time. Now the landlord is asking the courts for a review of the ruling and residents are calling for action from the provincial government. Justice! The worst crisis in, we've ever had in, in BC rental housing and the government allows landlords to bill tenants for maintenance that they should be paying for in the first place. A landlord is eligible to apply for an additional rent increase if they have incurred capital expenditures for the installation, repair or replacement of a major system that has failed, is malfunctioning or is at the end of life. Capital expenditures are not eligible for an additional rent increase if the costs are the result of inadequate repair or maintenance by the landlord. If they had maintenance and taken care of the property and the elevators over the course of the 40-some years that they've been opera in operation, they wouldn't have had to do this. I'm trying to reach the owners of the two buildings on Agnes Street in New Westminster. Despite efforts, we were unable to reach the building owners' XL properties. Not have vultures pick at our bones. Housing Minister Ravi Kalon says this is not a loophole for landlords to raise additional rents by passing along costs of major renovations, but a way to prevent renovations. Janet Brown, Global News. The feds kick in half a billion dollars for BC conservation. The announcement today that sets up a system to protect more of BC's wilderness with First Nations leading the way. That's next on the News Hour. We know that the BC lions are going to be those stinking, rotten, good for nothing stampeders. Tough talk from Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim ahead of this weekend's Western Final. The bet he just made with the mayor from Calgary coming up later. Right now, though, Sydney Island, the small Gulf island off the coast of Victoria, has a deer problem. And with a plan to eradicate hundreds of the animals, it is deeply dividing the community. Kylie Stanton shows us why. What a great day for a protest. As speakers take the stage, the petition makes the rounds. This crowd standing up for a deer population whose time is limited. We're here today to protest Parks Canada's plans to eradicate all of the fallow deer and also all of the native black-tailed deer with an operation that's starting November 25th. Over the course of roughly 10 days, Parks Canada will be conducting a mass kill here on Sydney Island. The plan to shoot upwards of 500 deer 
from helicopters. And there are extensive plans in place to keep everybody safe. So we have ocean spray, salal, native roses. The goal is to restore the native vegetation and ecosystem on the island that's been virtually wiped out by decades of feeding by fallow deer. And this is one of the reasons why Sydney Island has one of the lowest biodiversity ratings in the Gulf Islands. A great absence of these ecologically and also culturally important plants. We want to want to bring it back to its natural state and uh, so that uh, it can become useful again to our people in terms of foods and medicines. While local First Nations are in support of the plan, many islanders believe their efforts to manage the population through organized hunts has been working, rendering the eradication not only inhumane, but unnecessary. I think parks would do well to actually look at the situation on the ground today instead of the situation they remember from 15 years ago. We think it's really important for our MP to speak up in Parliament and ask for this process to be halted. It's not going to come to a vote in the House, for example. It's, it's an issue that's handled internally within Parks Canada. My approach when there's a controversy of this type is to listen to all sides and see if I can find common ground and then work towards solutions. But with the project that's set to cost $6 million set to start in less than a month, the clock is ticking. And not only for the deer population, now living on borrowed time. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Calling it a paradigm shift, B.C. Premier David Eby came together with his federal and First Nations counterparts today to announce a first-of-its-kind agreement on environmental protections here on the West Coast. And as Kristen Robinson reports, it's a billion-dollar deal to protect fully one-third of B.C.'s land and water by the end of the decade. After an unprecedented and devastating drought and wildfire season in B.C. I have 15 grandchildren and I worry about their future every single day. The province, federal government and the First Nations Leadership Council announcing a historic deal Grand Chief Stuart Phillip never thought he'd be talking about. It's the right thing to do for our for our grandchildren and future generations. The first of its kind tripartite framework agreement will protect and conserve biodiversity, habitats and species at risk and is billed as the largest investment into conservation in BC history. This is a paradigm shift in our province about protecting ecosystems. It's only by working together in true partnership that respects Indigenous culture, leadership and knowledge that we will be able to combat the triple crises of climate change, biodiversity loss and pollution. The Feds will be investing $500 million over eight years, while the BC government has dedicated $563 million. The deal enables action rooted in recognition of First Nations rights and title to attain the goal of protecting 30% of the province's lands and waters by 2030. This is part of a historic moment in time that was never easy in terms of getting here. We need to be a part of the decision-making process. We've been sharing this land for a long time. We need that voice. First Nations need that voice. But as well, we need that decision-making to help because the land, Mother Earth, is screaming. A $50 million B.C. old growth nature fund established by the federal Liberals in 2021 could be expanded 
to preserve 13,000 square kilometers of old growth forests. No one should think of the $50 million as a ceiling. I think it's a floor. According to the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, just over 15% of BC lands are currently protected by legislation, while an additional 4% are classified as conserved areas. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Coming up, new challenges for Shushwap residents. My neighbors are struggling. Why the rebuilding process after summer wildfires is taking longer than expected. And an update on efforts to clear a cliff that's prone to rock slides on a critical route through the Okanagan. Steady in both directions over here at the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge tonight. Still a bit slow, though, further east on Highway 1 through Vancouver and the Burnaby Lake stretch. Contact Kermac for expert windshield repair and replacement services while supporting Kermac Cares for Kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision and auto glass services, and that's no accident. I'm Tristy Wisson in Global One at the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge. Work to stabilize the rock slide along Highway 97 just north of Summerland is now into its next phase. Still going to be disruptive, though. Officials with the Ministry of Transportation say it's going to involve more rock blasts in a bid to reduce hazards to that stretch of highway. The blasts can be expected one to two times per week through the first half of December and will be scheduled from 11 to 1 p.m. That'll mean a full traffic closure for two hours to ensure safe conditions for the traveling public and for crews on site. Keep that in mind if you're driving through that area. Now, hundreds of people across the Okanagan and Shushwap are still recovering from summer wildfires. As Victoria Femia reports, months after many properties were destroyed, impacted residents are facing a major challenge to rebuild. Fire season may be over, but the effects of it are long-lasting. My neighbors are struggling. While North Sioux Swap resident Jim Cooperman didn't lose his home to the Bush Creek East wildfire, many of his neighbors did. Some of them are staying uh, with friends who might have a spare house or one set of neighbors, um, they're living in, in the basement of one of the houses that survived. Uh, there's two that have purchased trailers, but the water system is struggling, so there's no water up there right now. To speed up the rebuilding process, the Columbia Shuswap Regional District lifted a temporary moratorium on building permits in the South Adams Lake and Shuswap Lake areas to conduct geotechnical assessments, which revealed increased risks of unstable grounds in the North Shuswap and surrounding areas. And that's simply because when a, a wildfire of that magnitude goes through an area, it really burns out the root systems of the trees and destabilizes the slopes. Prior to the wildfires, developers in the North Sioux Swamp were already stretched thin. As Hughes says, that area is one of high growth, which means no matter what area you're rebuilding in, you could be waiting to find a builder. And we're hearing anecdotally from builders and contractors for things like drywall and framing um, that there were longer wait times than usual. And unfortunately, with the loss of these uh, 176 homes, that is going to put additional pressure on those local trades. Moving forward, one of the biggest concerns for the regional district is the increased risk of landslides following the massive wildfire. 
or that's becoming part of our emergency plans um, and our planning process um, moving into the spring. Uh, winter is a good time. Um, when things freeze, they kind of tend to be stable, but certainly spring freshet is going to be, uh, be an area of concern and something that we're going to be monitoring very closely. Residents now calling on the province to get more involved. They should be coming in here and providing assistance to our community to rebuild, to get the forest replanted. Victoria Famia, Global News. Just ahead, a community reeling with two residents missing. The mystery that surrounds both cases coming up next on the News Hour. Plus, one less health care option for an island community already short on doctors. Here we are over at the Alex Fraser Bridge where traffic is moving well north and south but still some leftover volume as usual on the east-west connector through Richmond. Did you know every poppy has a story? The Royal Canadian Legion invites you to scan yours with your phone and watch it come to life at poppystories.ca. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Two northern BC First Nations are calling for more action in the search for two missing people. As Krista Dow reports, they want a criminal investigation into both cases. In the past few weeks, hundreds of these information packets have been assembled, about to be handed out throughout the community, hoping to bring loved ones home. It's just got the missing, the information about Chelsea, and then the information for Jay. 29-year-old Chelsea Kwa, also known as Chelsea Heron, has been missing since October 11th. Her family describes her as the life of the party who cherished her dog. If we were having a get-together, you always knew she was there. She wasn't quiet. She was fun. She loved her dog so much. That dog has been with her for years. Kwa was last seen at her father's home on the Saika's First Nation south of Vanderhoof. Her disappearance out of character. Disappearing like this isn't isn't like Chelsea at all. She she has her dog Pepper that she would never ever ever leave, and she was making plans to go hunting like recently. There's just no way she would just leave. Her disappearance echoing that of Jay Preston Raphael, whose family say it is out of the ordinary for him to not be in touch. The 28-year-old was last seen on February 25th, leaving a home on the Saika's First Nation. We have two young people missing from the same community, and it's just not taken seriously. We're calling on a further response from the RCMP and for additional community volunteers and resources. In a press conference Friday, the Saika's First Nation and Carrier Sakani Family Services say more resources are needed to find Chelsea and Jay. And we need the RCMP to consider it more, take it more seriously, bring in more manpower. That is all my family wants. RCMP say they're actively investigating both disappearances and are following up on tips. As loved ones say, they'll continue searching. Krista Dow, Global News. In Health Matters tonight, two more B.C. communities are facing a health care crunch. Due to a staffing shortage, the only walk-in medical clinic in Vernon is closing its doors later this month. And as Catherine Urquhart reports, at the same time, 
The only walk-in clinic in Campbell River will stop seeing patients who aren't already connected to its family doctors. It's Campbell River's only walk-in medical clinic that takes patients who don't have a family doctor. But in just two weeks, it's set to close. It'll be lost uh, to us, my family, and, and for a lot of the community, uh, for everybody. Quinsan Medical Walk-In Clinic has eight doctors serving the community. A decision to shutter the business is due to several reasons, says licensed practical nurse Barb Baldwin. Main reason is because it's just not feasible to run. Uh, we don't have the staff to cover anymore. We're short on doctors as it is. Campbell River isn't the only town losing its one walk-in medical clinic. Vernon will face the exact same problem in a few weeks when Sterling Walk-In Clinic shuts its doors. I've asked all my friends and their doctors are full, so I don't know what I'm going to do. With the clinic closing, there's lots of people like with mental health issues that aren't going to be able to like get help anymore with that. BC's health minister told Global News. We know there are people who are unattached, meaning they're not attached to a family doctor in both communities, and uh, so we need to work to provide other options for them. Um, in the case of Canberra, it's important to note that all of the doctors involved have joined um, the new payment model, so they're all providing primary care in the community. With no quick fix expected anytime soon, patients without family doctors say they're bracing themselves their access to future medical care now likely to be more challenging. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Just ahead, no stone left alone. The powerful symbolism of this ceremony for students learning a lesson about sacrifice. And later in sports, after a taste of the NHL, attitude is everything for the veterans bringing their experience to the Abbotsford Canucks. Hundreds of students gathered in New Westminster today to lay poppies at Fraser Cemetery. The No Stone Left Alone ceremony included more than 350 grade 2 to 5 students from three schools. They joined cadets, Royal Canadian Legion members and Canadian Armed Forces reservists. They placed more than 450 poppies on military headstones to honour the courage and sacrifice of our Canadian veterans. Organizers say the ceremony creates an opportunity for the students to learn about history. When the children go home at night, they're asked to do a letter of reflection to thank the soldier or the uh, service person for their, for their service to Canada. And then it creates dialogue at home with their parents, with their families, with their grandparents. Stories start to come out. And sometimes those things are hidden in the background and don't get discussed, but this creates an opportunity for them to talk about it. The ceremony included a reading of In Flanders Field, a prayer of remembrance, and a flyover by the Canadian Air Force 443 Maritime Helicopter Squadron. Thank you, children, for doing that today. All right, uh, better pull all those Halloween decorations in or they're going to get soaked over the weekend. Here's Christy with a look at the forecast.
I'm so glad you mentioned that. I, I hope you did it today because today was one of the dry ones. In fact, it won't be too bad if you're really quick at it tomorrow. And I'll show you what I'm talking about in a second. Here's a look. So we've got wet, mild airs pushing in. Look how big this system is. So we're expecting 30 to 50 millimeters of rain and it's going to be very warm. So normal daytime highs for this time of year at YVR is about 10 degrees and we're going to see that overnight. Tomorrow afternoon, we're going to warm up to 15 degrees and we've got another system on deck. So we're going to see one thing after another. Now this moisture is going to spread right across the interior regions as well, but it's the BC Peace River area that is going going to see snowfall. Everywhere else is fairly mild. Snowfall, though, expected up to 15 centimeters for the BC Peace River area, and that's into late tomorrow and tomorrow night. Meanwhile, the South Coast area, widespread rain expected overnight. Tomorrow is going to be very different, though. We're going to see one of those days where you may see a break in the clouds, but then all of a sudden you'll see one of those really dark, flat-bottom clouds bring a downpour of rain. Watch for rainbows tomorrow as well. But yes, pockets of heavy rain. Keep the rain jacket handy, and we even have a risk of thunderstorms. Expect windy conditions as well. If you're traveling with BC Ferries tomorrow, I would just check with them before heading out. In the meantime, yes, rain at times all across the region, snow in the northeastern corner, mild flow with a high of 13 degrees in Kamloops, and for Metro Vancouver, we're expecting 15 degrees. The rain will be on and off into our Sunday and our Monday. Don't forget, Sunday, we change our clocks. We we uh, roll our clocks back an hour on Sunday, which means we gain an hour of sleep. And tonight, Central Windows weather window comes to you from English Bay. Tanner and Bree sending us that one. I love the shot with the dark clouds there, giving you an idea of what it could be like tomorrow. All right, Chris, back to you. Wow, what a beautiful shot. Okay, thanks very much, Christy. Okay, so Vancouver's mayor says he's made a bet with the mayor of Calgary over the upcoming playoff game between the BC Lions and the Calgary Stampeders. We know that the BC Lions are going to be those stinking, rotten, good-for-nothing Stampeders on Saturday. And we're so confident that, uh, you know, uh, if uh, we do lose, I'm going to wear a Calgary Stampeder uh, jersey at City Hall. And we're going to claim it Calgary Stampeder Day. Some fighting words from Mayor Ken Sim before Saturday's game. So far, Calgary's mayor, Jody Gondek, hasn't made any mention of the apparent bet on social media, but... It's not without precedent. She lost a similar bet last year and had to wear Edmonton Oilers colors in a council meeting. And, and a pa face painting She had to paint her well. face, too. That's, like, that's next-level bad news. Maybe she's not saying anything because she doesn't want to make the bet because she knows Calgary probably won't win. Yeah, it's a pretty safe bet on Ken's part, that's for sure. I like it. I like <laughs> that. Um, what do you got? Well, we have seen 8-1 from the Vancouver Canucks this year, and last night we saw... Hand one. And it wasn't all the big names scoring the goals. It's nice to see some guys that haven't scored to get their, you know, to get their confidence. Yeah, one of those was Anthony Beauvillier, who scored a couple of goals his first two of the year, while Vancouver rested a lot of its stars in the latter part of the game. You said last night they were supposed to win. Oh, yeah. That, well, that was easy to say that. Oh, that Dark was a safe bet. All right, also tonight, satellite debris. And yes, it's Christmas. Christmas. What happened to three?
It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a yeah. guaranteed win last night. Well, it was as close as you're going to get to a game. I just want to see something here. Worked yeah, out I'm pretty right. well. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. You checking the scores? No, no, I was just checking something <laughs> I was going to tell, tell everybody. I just okay. wanted to make sure that what I was telling everybody was correct. But, no, I mean, that was easy last night. The Sharks are dreadful. Mm -hmm. Like, they're dreadful. That was like when the Canucks lost that 10 nothing game in the exhibition campaign. Remember when Vancouver had all its, like, rookies out there and Calgary played all its best players? That's right. It kind of looked like the same thing, even though the guys the San Jose Sharks had were NHLers, supposedly. The uh, Vancouver Canucks right now are the highest-scoring team in the NHL. I think they've scored 24 more goals than they've allowed. It's a dream start that nobody dreamt of. But have you noticed something? The Canucks players... And Canucks head coach Rick Tockett are keeping very chill about this. Nobody is acting like things have turned around for good. They are cautiously optimistic, kind of like Canuck fans, who have been burned way too many times over the years to believe without having at least some reservations. But a 10-1 win last night in San Jose. And three players right now in the top five of NHL scoring. And Thatcher Demko, back to his old self, is making it hard to keep the bandwagon from filling up. Here's Hughes, Elias Pettersson, Brock Besser shoots, he scores! Besser dumps one ahead, hoping Miller can get there first, he does, he scores! Hughes moves to the middle with a wrist shot, scores! Now you have to be playing great to score 10 goals in an NHL game, even if you are playing against a Sharks team that looked about as empty as its arena did. By the end of this game, the only person left may have been Thatcher Demko's mother. But as always, Rick Tockett never gets too high, even over the big wins. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's four or five nothing. You, you still want the guys to play hard. It's nice to see some guys that haven't scored to get their, you know, to get their confidence. Now maybe it loosens guys up. So that's something I like to see, and um, to get some other guys getting some goals, it was nice to see. We also got to see Elias Pettersson's impressive hand-eye coordination, which led to a goal. Andre Kuzmenko scoring and then checking to see if Kapo Kakinen, the Sharks goalie, was okay after an accidental knee to the head. And this game also gave Vancouver a chance to rest some of its top guys because in the end it was Ian Cole and Pew Suter who ended up playing the most minutes. So it was kind of nice to get some other guys playing a lot um, uh, that don't usually play this much and also, you know, getting some offense from those guys. Like I said, hopefully they'll get them confidence down the road. The Abbotsford Canucks have been scoring as well. Arshdeep Baines leads the AHL in scoring right now. And the good thing for young players like him is there are a lot of veterans in Abbotsford who have played in the big show. Here's Di Giuseppe. Dries cutting towards the goal. Backhander scores! Sheldon Dries knows all too well what it's like to play in the big leagues. Dries has 122 NHL games on his pro resume, including 63 last year with the Canucks, where he put up some pretty good numbers, 11 goals and 17 points. But he also knows the minor leagues pretty well too. 228 career AHL games, including 65 of them with the Abbotsford Canucks, where he finds himself again to start this season. It's just part of the game, right? I'm a bubble guy, I'll always be one. Um, so it's just part of it. I, I enjoy wherever I play. Um, try to be the best I can every day and the best teammate I can. So uh, it's good to be here and it's good to get back to work here. Dries is not alone. Nils Amon played 68 games with the Vancouver Canucks last year. Vasily Pudkolzin, 39. 
and Christian Wolanin, 16. To the blue line, Wolanin, right point, Burroughs, wrist shot, tip in. There's not very many people that want to be in the minors. Everybody wants to be up top, but um, the minors be as good as the group of guys is, right? And, and our group of guys is, is real solid, as you said. A lot of veteran guys that come in with a great attitude, a lot of young guys that are eager to, to get to the next level and learn. And, um, we just have a great environment in our locker room, great energy, no negativity, and um, it's actually a lot of fun to be a part of. And on to the point, Malina, his shot scores! It would be easy to sulk and say you got a raw deal being sent back down, but that's not the way these vets look at it. They can't if they ever want to get called back up to the big Canucks, whose fast start and improved depth make it an even bigger challenge. You're pushing each other each day in practice, and in the end, that's what's going to make uh, the organization better, right? If you got that compete between teammates, a healthy compete, right? It's not hate, it's, it's hoping that your buddy does well so you can do well as well. In my opinion, there's no point in wasting any time. Uh, if you think you deserve to be in the next level, then just go to work and prove it. And I think uh, overall, our group understands that. I feel youthful mentally, physically, and uh, just trying to develop every year. And uh, I still feel pretty raw as a defenseman with, with my experience uh, playing defense as late as I did. So uh, I'm confident in, in finding a way to stick somewhere or another. 3.30 tomorrow, BC Place, Lions-Calgary, Western semifinal. Lions defensive coach Ryan Phillips is not afraid of the chance that is always there of being upset by a lesser team. Yeah, playoffs, you know what I'm saying, it is a clean slate from that standpoint. The 12 and 6 and the 6 and 12 doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, also, like I said, we are a team that believes in what we're doing and how we could do it. And that's why, you know, we've been able to win 12 games and we expect to win the 13. Whitecaps LAFC Sunday at BC Place. There you go. I'll be there. Thank you, Squire. Satellite debris is next. I know we just got past Halloween, but you'll notice a changing of the seasons in satellite debris tonight. In the advertising world, the moment Halloween is over, Christmas begins. <laughs> and we start Even with... before that, actually. Yeah, that's <laughs> might true. might be right. Uh, John Travolta... Going all Saturday Night Fever as Santa Claus in a Capital One commercial. That's two for five dollars. What happened to three? Where have you been? North Pole. Disco ball for the sleigh. Nice. Hey there. Watch this. Boom! Oh, oh, oh. How's the hair? Frosty as ever. in your wallet. You got it. You got it. <laughs> I don't think that was a stunt bubble. I think that was him. Nope. Okay, so uh, we have a uh, commercial about making cheesecake. But the first thing you're going to see is, yeah, I guess penguins sometimes don't like swimming in the cold water either. Watch what happens to this penguin and a boat. Uh, I guess it's an Australian scientific expedition thing. Uh, you'll see. <laughs> All right.
Hi, I'm Becky. This is my boyfriend, Dante. Charmed. I made him out of a sock. This is his daughter, Dakota. Hi. Today, we are making a cheesecake. That sounds hard. Really? I heard it's a little easy. Let's try it. That smells amazing. How does that look? Beautiful. Wow, a cheesecake. And it was easy peasy. We should ask if Heather wants some. And back to the Christmas themes, this one from a company called Barber. Extend the life of your garment, it might be best to go to Barber. That kind of a Wallace and Gromit feel to it, didn't it? It was. And it, yeah, it's thorn proof wax dressing. Oh, have a Ooh. great weekend, everybody.